0: Hey everyone and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host Chef AJ and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Today is the second Wednesday of the month which means it's time for Rewind Your Body Clock with Jamie Goddard and today she's going to be discussing natural remedies for menopause and perimenopause. Please welcome her to the show. How are you doing all the way across the ocean?
1: That's it, AJ. Doing very, very well, thank you. Uh, Still, having said that, waiting for spring to spring. We have had such a wet spring here in the UK Uh, so we're just hoping that that's going to you know obviously look after our flowers and our grass and our trees for the summer Uh, but yeah it's been a really odd odd time but uh, anyway yes though I'm so I've been sort of just spending my time indoors doing more research just geeking out on all of these wonderful topics that we discuss AJ so uh, yeah so today um, I really thought it was about time that we talk about some of the evidence Space uh, surrounding natural approaches to menopause and perimenopause. Um, I think the problem is that a lot of, a lot of the time. Um, I think the message that we're given as women is that this is just, you know it's it's something that happens and and the medical model is to absolutely medicalize menopause, um, which is really not the right approach at all because it's not a med- it's not an illness. This is the thing. you know, menopause is not an illness. It's a life stage. And so as a result, um, it means that we can make particular types of uh, lifestyle adjustments very easily and very simply. And the result is that it absolutely pays dividends in doing so so it's just a little bit of effort to change what we do on a regular day-to-day basis but my goodness um, it really truly does help Um, so all of those pesky symptoms uh, that you know we are sort of led to believe are are our lot uh, once we reach that certain age um, you know we don't have to suffer this is the really good news we don't have to suffer we don't have to have an uncomfortable menopause so I'm going to uh, discuss today obviously Things like nutrition, lifestyle, um, exercise, mindset, and various other bits and pieces. Um, We're also going to touch on other things that come along with the menopause. I'm going to talk about various symptoms, but I'm also going to talk about um, other things like what we do about skin wrinkling um, that that happens at this particular time and why. We'll also talk about things like hair thinning and why that happens and what we can do about it. Um, And so I've got, and, and as you know, of course, AJ, everything I share with you in in this group and on my pages and so on it's all fully evidence-based I'm a real stickler to for for making sure that the research absolutely backs up everything that we discuss here so that um, our viewers and listeners know that it's safe it's effective and you know it does actually have you know really good tangible evidence-based results so uh, with that I shall Forge ahead. <laughs> so uh, um, I wanted to sort of set the scene, AJ, if I if you don't mind. Um, I, this, the, the idea for this, this um, program's topic was that there was a recent BBC documentary on the subject of menopause. Um, and I was really dismayed that, that they were really treating the menopause as a disease and something that goes very wrong with us women and needs to be fixed. Um, you know, and it's because it's not the case. Um, we're going to really talk today about what menopause really is and why women in some countries have a really easy time of things when they get to the stage where their periods stop, and women in other countries have a really, really difficult time with uncomfortable, even totally debilitating symptoms. So it's very, very strange. Um, so I also wanted to uh, bring things when when we sort of get to the end, I just wanted to bring things together just to give you my top three tips that everybody listening, if they're going through, if they're menopausal, uh, perimenopausal, it's been a long day, (laughs) what, you know, things that they can actually do, uh, tips and techniques that they can integrate into their lives very simply and very easily that actually make a tangible difference right away. So this is a really super practical session and i think it's always useful for sessions to be practical to have takeaway information that you can go aha oh, i can do that and i can do that easily so uh, anyway um it's really intriguing this this whole thing about menopause is so fascinating because in the industrialized countries um women tend to reach menopause around about 30 years old. And the reason for that is because our ovaries stop producing estrogens or estrogens, uh, depending on which part of the world you're in, and blood levels of this very important hormone absolutely plummet dramatically. Um, Some women are lucky enough to go through this particular change feeling fine, physically, emotionally, and, and psychologically. However, the flip side of that is that not all women do sail through the menopause. My mother did. I didn't and it's another reason why I was really keen to find out you know well what can I be doing uh, to sort this out so I'm glad to say I've I'm I'm a great self-experimenter and I would never share anything that I hadn't actually tried myself so I think it's quite useful to know that Um, obviously there are many women who are troubled by um, all sorts of symptoms um, hot flushes as we call them in the UK or hot flashes as you call them in the US, uh, depression, anxiety, irritability and all sorts of other problems. Um, Things like vaginal dryness, weight gain, weight gain particularly around the midsection, insomnia um the feeling that we just want to snap and bite everybody's head off um, for me personally speaking when i when when the menopause really hit me i noticed insomnia first and then just terrible um i couldn't even call it depression or anxiety i just didn't recognize myself um, i sort of just lost my mojo and i did it happens very slowly so that loss of mojo just sort of happened over a period of time and then after this period of time I was just, just thinking I don't even I don't even sort of recognize who I am, this very unmotivated, tired person who just wants to stay in bed, and pull the duvet over my head. So, you know, I'm not speaking at this from some sort of, you know, theoretical perspective. You know, I've I've had difficulties myself. And so I'm really, really keen. Um, And I know that we all have different types of difficulties. So again, this is why I'm so, 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 so keen to help women, you know, know what the possibilities are, what can happen, what can go wrong, but what can go right. Um, So what happens is that um, once we hit menopause, there's a very common misconception that we're then completely devoid of oestrogen. It's not actually true. Uh, While the ovaries have actually stopped producing most of our oestrogen, we do still have adrenal glands. These are little organs, little glands that sit on the top of each kidney. So adrenals, so above the renal above the the kidneys, um, and also interestingly enough, our fatty tissue, particularly around our midsection, continues to make estrogens. A lot of the time, it used to be thought, uh, sort of back in the day, that uh, fat tissue is an inert substance. Uh, what we now know, and what was, has really been discovered in recent years, is that fat is anything but inert. And this is why it's so important to take steps. If, if we're feeling that we're gaining around the midsection, to actually take steps to modulate that, um, th- th- those fat levels. Because, and this is not a body-shaming thing. It's not a. It's not about um, you know looks or anything like that at all. It's actually about physiology. What we know is that that midsection fat actually produces and other areas of fat in the body, but particularly the midsection produces estrogens. And if you have a genetic predisposition towards any kind of hormonally mediated cancers such as ovarian, uterine or breast cancers, If you've got higher levels of circulating estrogens in your body, it does increase your risk of cancer. It also increases your risk of other chronic diseases as well. So that's the first reason, that's the first thing we need to consider about um, fat around the middle. The next thing we also need to consider is that again, recently discovered is that this belly fat and also the fat around our internal organs, the visceral fat in that area, actually also produces pro-inflammatory cytokines. These are hormonal messengers, uh, particularly Well, yeah, various, various um, cytokines, actually, Um, particularly uh, the IL, the interleukins, that code for upregulating, increasing our levels of inflammation. And so anybody who's watched these programs before with me knows that I talk about um, elevated chronic inflammation an awful lot. And the reason that I talk about that a lot is because it underpins, chronic inflammation underpins every single disease that we wrongly associate with being a natural part of the aging process. So the lifestyle-related cancers, um, things like uh, type 2 diabetes, um, heart disease. Uh, circulatory issues even the um even things like kidney disease and um, autoimmune illnesses and even the neurological diseases uh Alzheimer's Parkinson's and and other dementias they all have this underlying inflammatory component but the flip side of this is that we know that when we get all of this under control and we can absolutely with a lifestyle approach, the nutritional information, uh, exercise information, and so on that I'm coming to in a bit, we can actually not only get rid of the uh, belly fat accumulation, the visceral fat accumulation, um, but we can actually dramatically reduce our risk of developing those chronic illnesses. And if we've developed them already, we can halt and in many cases, even re- re- reverse them and reverse the damage that those have done. So, you know, it's an incredibly positive message this, by the way. So it does mean that we're, we've got so much more control over our future health than we ever, ever thought we was, was ever possible. Um, something I always like to say to my patients and clients is that, uh, the decisions that you make on a daily basis from moment to moment, day to day, uh, actually dictate and predict your future health, whether that's a future of being very, very ill and living into old age, but being very ill in within that old age, or actually living a nice ripe old age and actually not having any particular ailments Um, and when you speak to most people and you say to them you know do you want to live a long time do you want to live until your 80s 90s 100s plus Um, plus? a lot of them will always say yes but only if I'm healthy and so the lifestyle approaches that you talk about on all of your shows AJ and and what I teach and and I, I do with my patients and clients these are the keys. These are the things that actually work and the evidence supports that. It's not woo, it's not made up, it's not just, you know, yes, do, do this, we think it might work. No, do this because we know it works. It's no ifs, buts, and maybes these days. So um, anyway, back to what happens in the, the menopause is that in industrialised nations, um we do tend to think of menopause as a disease and there's a lot of um there's a lot of impetus from the pharmaceutical industry to promote this medicalization of menopause so that uh, it looks to women as though they've got something very very wrong with them that needs to be fixed with a medication and uh, we're starting in the uk to see this problem being promoted as an illness we're also and, and i know in, in the us you know again it the menopause is very very medicalized and there's a whole industry around um HRT and, and, and all the rest of it so yeah you know this is the thing we, we women have to you know we have we have to pull back um, we have to pull back control we have to maintain um, our, our bodily autonomy and not be medicated into into non-existence because it just is is cruel and there are better solutions out there so menopause itself actually the word just means cessation of the menstrual cycle so menopause pause um it's completely natural and, and healthy and um, so that's you know i think that's a really important first takeaway piece of information um interestingly though many women who are living in in the sort of industrialized nations uh, they do experience symptoms um And we have to ask why this is, especially when we consider that menopause is much easier for Asian women than it is for Westerners. And in fact, in Japan, there is actually no word for menopause. Um, It's just not even it doesn't even sort of register on the radar in Japan. So. Let's think about some of the symptoms, hot flushes or hot flashes, as you say in the States and and elsewhere. Um, I'll give you some other stats. Um, They've only been reported by about 10% of menopausal women in China. Um, In Singapore, only 17.6% of women experience any kind of hot flashes or hot flashes. And in uh, Japan, they, it's up to 22.1% of women who do experience these temperature fluctuations, but they don't find them particularly troubling. Uh, whereas, I mean, I know my, my friends are sort of standing, you know, with their heads in the fridge or even worse, with their head in the freezer. You know, they're absolutely drenched, um, getting terrible night sweats and, and so on. Um, in fact, it's estimated that 75% of women over the age of 50 in the USA, um, about 75% of those women who are of menopause age Will experience hot flushes on hot flashes. So it's really, really intriguing. So what of other countries, um, other westernized countries, industrialised countries like the UK, um, Northern Europe, and so on? Well, actually, because our lifestyles are so similar, we actually have to surmise that the stats are probably just the same. Um, and certainly that, you know, my experience as a practitioner is borne out by the number of women who come to me and say, I'm really Really suffering, and you know, it's it's an awful lot. Um, so yeah, so so we think it's because of the the sort of relative similarity of our lifestyles and, and dietary habits. Uh, you call it the SAD, the standard American diet. We don't really have um, are such a helpful acronym in the UK because that would be the SBD, the standard British diet. And it just doesn't have that ring to it, does it? So, uh, you know, if we talk about SAD, I think most people know what we're talking about. Um, the, the, the problem is that in general, Women in industrialized nations consume a lot more meat and about four times as much fat as women on Asian rice-based and vegetable-based diets. Um, And in industrialized nations, we consume about a quarter to a half of the fiber that the ladies consume who don't have menopausal difficulties in these other countries. Um, So what we know is that a high fat, low fiber diet causes a rise in estrogen levels. Um, Also, what we know is that women on diets that contain more fat have measurably more estrogen activity than women on low fat diets. And when they hit menopause, uh, the women who've been on these high fat diets have even more of a precipitous drop in estrogen levels. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm switching between American and English, estrogen, estrogen, tomato, tomato. So for everybody, I hope I'm not confusing everybody. It's because I spend, uh, you know, normally, under normal circumstances, you know, I'm sort of back and forth, back and forth across the pond. So I do automatically switch between the two. And quite honestly, I won't be able to tell you which is American and which is English now. So <laughs> I'm, I've got that much confusion going on, like linguistically. Anyway, so um, what's interesting is that because the women in Asia don't consume as much fat, they don't have this massive precipitous drop-off. So although they get their periods cease, uh, what actually happens is it's very, very gradual. So the decline is gradual, it's very natural, and it's absolutely fine that oestrogen does decline. In fact, it's desirable because of things like hormone-mediated cancers. So we do want our oestrogen levels to, to drop down, but we want them to drop gently so that we can ease ourselves into the menopause. And so... This is really, um, really what we're trying to go for. It's actually also very interesting because the Asian women, even before they go into menopause, they have lower levels of circulating estrogen, estrogen. Um, and so what that means, again, is that they are at lower risk of uh, of of. of you know, sort of um, the the kinds of problems that come along with elevated estrogen. So, you know, so it's a very interesting thing. It's just, you know, comparing the, the various diets. So all, so overall there's less comparison, less difference between before and after menopause for Asian women. So they just don't get those uncomfortable symptoms. Um, so we're gonna be talking about what we can do to mimic that in a minute. Um, There's also more evidence of the dietary link between a comfortable menopause and an uncomfortable menopause, or even a devastatingly horrible menopause, um, when we look at other countries as well. Um, Let's look at, we'll take a moment to look at the way that Greek women and Mayan women down in Mexico experience menopause. Um, There was a very large study, AJ, that was. Uh, It was actually conducted in the 1980s and it looked at the way that that menopause affected women who were living in non-industrialized environments. Mm -hmm. So they looked at a group of Greek women who were subsistence farmers. So these are women who were mainly eating um, whole grains, vegetables, and if they were eating meat or fish or or eggs um, or dairy, it was very 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 small amounts minor minor amounts and um, so you know th- their diet was very sort of whole food predominantly plant-based um, and it was found there that menopause occurred at an average age of 47 compared with an average age of over 50 in the USA. So those women in Greece the subsistence farmers had the advantage of going into an earlier menopause, meaning less lifetime exposure to estrogen. Now, about three quarters of the Greek women who were studied had hot flushes, but it's interesting because they were considered to be absolutely normal events, and they didn't cause the women to seek any kind of treatment, whether it was conventional medicine or even herbal medicine. So they have this very rich tradition, of course, obviously ancient Greece being the home of medicine, um, you know, with uh, with Galen and Hippocrates and so on. And so, it's very interesting that they have this very rich um, folk medicine uh, kind of uh, tradition there. And so, over the millennia, you know for sure that if these hot flashes or hot flushes had been problematic to the women, they would have sought out um, herbal medicines that would have helped them. So this is, I think, very intriguing. So they get the symptoms, but they're not bothered by them. And then let's look at the the Mayan women. Um, They were studied um, in uh, various groups in the southern part of the Yucatan Peninsula down in Mexico. Um, Menopause in these women actually occurred even earlier than in the Greek ladies, um, or of course the the North Americans. So their average age of menopause is 42. Um, Again, very interesting, why is that? Again, it comes back to lifestyle and particularly diet. So unlike the experience of the the Greeks and the Americans, the hot flushes, they they were unknown in the Mayan women. Absolutely. They just didn't get them. Um, and like the Japanese, they've got no words for hot flushes or hot flashes, they've got no word for menopause. It's just their their periods stop and they don't have any symptoms. That's it. Um yeah, So <laughs> lucky them. Um, anyway, it's very interesting also because part of the study also looked at traditional medicines in the area, much as they did with the Greeks. And they looked at the Mayan botanical medicines and those all of those beautiful books that go back millennia. And again, nothing in there about menopause, which is really intriguing. So this evidence was also corroborated by midwives and other medical personnel just saying look you know is is this are we missing a trick here in this this research study uh, are we asking the wrong questions um is there another way of describing a hot flushes, hot flashes, um, is there another way of describing insomnia, is, you know, are we missing a trick here? And the midwives and the other medical personnel said, no, no, we know about uh, menopause because, we, you know, a lot of us have had Western training um, in America or where have you, but no, these women do not get these uh, symptoms at all. So uh, we we have to ask ourselves, you know, what's the deciding factor? Um, Is it diet? Uh, Well, let's look at what the Mayan ladies eat. Um, Their diet really consists mostly of corn, corn tortillas, beans, tomatoes, uh, squash, sweet potatoes, radishes and other vegetables with very little to no meat and no dairy products. they and, and this these are groups that live really, really way south. So they haven't had much Western influence. So they haven't got McDonald's on every corner or anything like that. So it's a very pure environment to study. So this is what makes for great science, because you've got groups of people who who haven't got the confounding factors that make scientific research so difficult. Um, It's very interesting as well, because like the Japanese diet, it's extremely low in animal products and low in fat in general. So this is intriguing. So it looks like whole foods, vegetables and very, very, very low fat. Um, And of course, also, these people are not adding refined salt oil and sugar so essentially they are inadvertently uh leading a whole food plant-based sos diet which is really intriguing so um you know and i know obviously aj this is something that you know that you talk about to you know in such a beautiful way and i'm, I'm really intrigued to know you know sort of whether you've noticed that people's uh, menopausal symptoms have, have changed or improved you know once they've made uh, transitions because I know obviously you talk to a lot of people um, it's interesting though going back to the Greek diet and comparing that again um, obviously it's very rich in vegetables and legumes and and whole foods definitely whole foods they don't really do too much they Fiddle with their foods too much and, and refine them, which is great, um, but they do have, as I said earlier, slightly larger amounts of meat, fish, cheese, milk, and uh, and, and so on. So uh, you know there, there is a there is more animal protein and of course the concomitant fat that comes along with that in the diet, um, and of course. This is what we see in North America and Europe and, and so on. So this is, you know, we, we do believe that the correlation actually happens as a result of, of nutritional issues. So there is absolutely no doubt, the research suggests there's no doubt that animal based meals affect hormones surprisingly strongly. And these. this is really what's contributing to menopausal problems that are so common in Western nations. So that's the sort of the, the nutritional side of things. Um, it's particularly interesting that with the, the group of people, the Mayan ladies, um, and also the Japanese, um, another um, common denominator in those two diets Is sweet potato consumption, yams. And what we know is, of course, that yams contain um, hormonal precursors, um, and so that is potentially another really interesting area of research. So I'm hoping that some brilliant scholars out there are going to look at, you know, it, how much of a how much of an effect uh, is is yam consumption in, in just alone actually having, because I suspect it's probably quite a lot. Uh, so sweet potatoes, yams, whatever you call them. Um, now the next thing that I wanted to bring into the picture is exercise um exercise is as we know absolutely non-negotiable for all of us but particularly for um for women when we get to well all of our lives throughout our lives I mean I'm not going to say suddenly get to a point where you don't exercise and then start exercising ideally in an ideal world and I know nobody's perfect but if it's at all possible Um, it would be wonderful if we could all do what I call the three-legged stool of exercise. I would imagine a little stool, it's got three legs and it makes it very, very stable, keeps us nice and steady. And uh, so the first type of exercise that I really would love everybody to do because it's so easy, it costs nothing, is to go out and walk at least half an hour every day. And ideally, if you can do a brisk walk, that is so much the better. A brisk walk is where you are walking as fast as you possibly can safely, uh, making sure you're looking where you're going, and uh, but you, you're, you're able to hold a conversation but only just, so that's what constitutes a brisk walk. Now the reason I really wanted to mention this, AJ, is because the National Health Service here, the NHS, in the UK, our health service, has been doing a lot of research in what can we do to combat the obesity pandemic Um, we've got just as much obesity um, as you as you do in the states Um, it's a real problem and it's really affecting younger and younger and younger groups so the NHS is madly scrambling to find out what they can do about getting messaging out that that, you know with things strategies that people can actually do so um, they are recommending uh, 10 a 10 minute brisk walk And then they're saying, and if you can do that three times a day, so much the better. And this they are saying, and their research supports the fact that this is what burns off the belly fat. Um, and it's, it's great to go out for an amble, that's fine, but if you can do a brisk walk, that is where, where we really start to see the results. And so we're protecting ourselves in general, men and women from the chronic diseases that we spoke about earlier, the cancers, the heart disease, um, all of those uh, chronic diseases that we wrongly associate with being a natural part of the aging process, arthritis, neurological diseases, circulatory diseases, heart disease and the rest. So risk walking is is really where it's at. The ideal is 10 minutes, three times a day, or if you can do it all in one go, that's great, you know, fantastic. Um, For women, of course, also we get that added bonus That it's bringing down our estrogen levels, and that's actually really protective um, health wise for us anyway. So, you know, this is something that's super, super important. If you can't do brisk walking, and there will certainly be people who can't, I was in that situation myself when I was a full time wheelchair user when my rheumatoid arthritis was completely out of control. So, I would be listening to this, uh, you know, this discussion and thinking, well, yeah. That's all very well, but I can't do that. So there are always going to be people who have to find adaptations. So, what part of your body can you move briskly? Can you possibly, if you're using a wheelchair, can you do get one of those um, pieces of equipment where you can cycle with your with your hands, uh, with your arms? Anything you can do to raise your um, raise your pulse rate and get yourself slightly out of breath, please try it. No matter what your situation is. Put your mind to it, see what you can do to actually come up with, you know, something, some form of movement that you can do. It will help. It all counts. It's really, really, hugely important. Um, And then we've got um, weight uh, weight training, uh, resistance training as it's also called. Now you don't have to go to the gym to do this, this is the second part of the three-legged stool. Um, ideally what we need to do is we need to use body weight exercises, so whether that's things like squats or whether it's things like um, push-ups, wall push-ups, if you can't do floor press-ups or push-ups, uh, if you can do pull-ups, you can get a pull-up bar, um, all of those sorts of things are great If you can get to a gym, that's fantastic. And you can use the the machines there. always good to get somebody, if you aren't familiar with the equipment, always get somebody to show you um, just to be on the safe side, because you know, you can have an injury, you can do yourself a mischief. And that's annoying because it puts you out while you're waiting for whatever injury it is to to heal up. Um, And that can be very disheartening. And in my experience, a lot of people will get an injury from going to the gym and, and, and just simply exercising with poor technique. And then they won't go back because they're just, you know, that that frame of mind has gone and, uh, you know, they find they're finding other things to fill the time. Um, and we all know we've all done it. So, you know, so that's so that's that and their end of the sermon. And then the other thing I would love people to consider doing are the mindful exercises, um, the ones that you do where you really have to. Keep your mind on what you're doing, such as yoga. So it really brings you into your centre. It really is mindful exercise. So you, when you're on your yoga mat, you're just there. You're just present in the here and now. And you're not thinking about what you've got to make for dinner, you're not thinking about what happened yesterday or that conversation where you wish you had said X, Y, Z six weeks ago, if only I had come back with that very clever pithy comment Um, because we all do that, don't we? (laughs) And uh, anyway, so, um, you know, getting yourself into a gym, making sure, sorry, uh, sorry, getting yourself um, to do mindful exercise is great. So things like Pilates is really valuable. Pilates, um, A lot of people don't really consider Pilates to be a mindful form of exercise, but Joseph Pilates always intended it to be completely mindful. Because you think about Pilates, if you've ever had full on proper Pilates training, not just going to your local community centre mat-based Pilates class, but really working one-to-one with a Pilates teacher, you know how you have to engage your mind in tightening your core, pulling up your pelvic floor and all of those things as you're exercising it's abs your, your concentration levels when you're doing pilates have to be absolutely spot on otherwise it's really easy not to do the exercises correctly so they, these are the sorts of exercises that work so well for us and they do help to modulate hormonal expression we've also got things like tai chi and Kung, which are fantastic approaches tai chi of course came out of martial arts in ancient china um, but it's now turned into a wonderful health promotional exercise form. And qigong is actually a form of movement based medicine. And that's part of the uh, portfolio of traditional Chinese medicine. And uh, so, you know, Qigong has wonderful strategies for all life stages including menopause and and helping to resolve menopausal difficulties so again I would say get thee to a Qigong class Um, if you possibly can find one near you it will pay absolute dividends so definitely bear that in mind as well so those are my three exercise strategies walking brisk walking if you can. If you can only amble that's fine but please try to get at least half an hour walk in every day of the week, five days a week, absolute minimum, ideally more than that if you possibly can. Weight training, resistance training it's also known, either using your own body weight or going to the gym and then of course the mindful exercises that we've just spoken about. And then the next part of the picture is where we talk about sleep. Now sleep and menopause are not the best of friends, as we know. Um, It's entirely possible to develop insomnia during menopause when you've never ever had it before in your entire life. And it's devastating. Losing sleep is absolutely devastating. It just, it it causes so many other knock-on problems, because the thing is that when you don't sleep, your hormones switch around and do all sorts of really unhelpful things for example, your levels of a hormone called ghrelin actually increase. And this is a hormone that actually makes us hungry. And it makes us particularly crave fatty and sugary foods because we're looking for a quick energy fix to compensate for that lack of sleep. Also, our levels of leptin actually drop if we've not slept. And so what can happen is that our our leptin levels are low and that's our satiety hormone. That's the hormone that tells us when to stop eating. So if you are in, you're going through the menopause and and a lot of women say to me, I just, I'm gaining all this weight and I'm not eating less and I'm exercising just the same, what's going on? And of course, yes, your hormones are fluctuating, of course. But a lot of the time the culprit is sleep. And I can, t- I can tell you that if I don't sleep, if, when I wasn't sleeping and I was uh, you know, really sort of going through my, my my night sweats and my insomnia and so on, just speaking personally, and I'm happy to share this with, with everybody watching, um, quite honestly, AJ, if I didn't sleep for a good sort of three, four, five days, I would easily gain three pounds and it was all around the belly. Um, And it's that dramatic and it comes on that quickly. This is why we've got to get our sleep levels under control. So the first tip is always make sure you are getting up at the same time every day. Creating a routine is super important. Getting to sleep at the same time every night or going to bed at the same time every night is ideal. Uh, But we know, and being realistic with menopause, what we know is that, we can, we can sort of go to bed and we can either toss and turn or, or what have you. There's nothing wrong then in that situation by in getting up and maybe reading a little bit in a lower light situation, if you possibly can, if you can see to read. Um, maybe just doing a puzzle, something along those sorts of lines. Um, it's OK to do that. But you've actually given your body the message that we go to bed at this time and we get up at this time. It's the, 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 the waking time, the morning time that is non-negotiable. That's the time you get up, you've got to set your alarm, you've got to get up at that time, no matter what, no matter how ghastly you feel, because this is what actually resets our circadian rhythms. So this is why we really have to try to do this. It will help and it will feel ghastly for the first few days but you will get into that mode very, very quickly. It's also really important to realize that your temperature can fluctuate. So if you can try to keep your room cooler rather than warmer that will also really help you to sleep and also invest in earplugs if you you know if you've got a noisy environment or even if you're you've got an air con for example switching on and off or a fan that's making a slightly distracting noise or if you've got a partner that snores or if you've got a dog that snores or you know anything that's going to disturb you use your earplugs um, and also use an eye mask because it's important to keep uh, the your your environment as dark as possible and unfortunately for most of us living in the you know industrialized nations there's gonna be some light pollution somewhere unless you are very, very, very lucky and living right out in the countryside. So just bear in mind, but even actually when I've been in the countryside up a mountain in Wales, it happened to be a full moon and that full moon was so, so bright. It was coming through, it was coming through like a floodlight and I was saying, what what, what on earth is going on there? And it was just the full moon that had come round. And, you know, so again, that really, really got, you know, that woke me up and nowhere was I going back to sleep. So, um, you know, these are tricks and tips that absolutely work. Also, um, increasing your melatonin levels. You don't have to take melatonin tablets. Um, It's not necessary. Eating tart uh, cherries or or drinking tart cherry juice is great. It's a really rich source of melatonin. Eating things like porridge oats um, uh, or Oatmeal. Oatmeal, as you call it in the States more uh, more commonly, um, is a really good source. Banana. And um, these are all precursors to melatonin. So these are the sorts of okay. things that will actually, um, corn is another good one. Um, I'm just trying to rack my brains now to see if I can think of any others for you. Those are the top four or five that actually make a difference to us being able to fall asleep and stay asleep. And then the other thing is, and I know I've mentioned this before on this show, which is my yoga nidra recording. Um, Yoga nidra is a form of meditation that actually the, the actual process only lasts 20 minutes. But they say in Ayurvedic medicine that a 20 minute yoga nidra meditation session is the equivalent of two hours of deep restorative sleep, the the key word being restorative. So you go into really deep sleep. so I've actually got a Yoga Nidra recording that's downloadable for free on my website, janiegoddard.com. Um, I really do encourage people to go grab it and download it and share it with your friends because it is so effective. Um I've had many people say to me, it's a great recording, Jenny. I really like it, but I've no idea how it ends. And they've gone, they've they've gone to sleep and they've stayed asleep. This is the thing. So um please use it. It's free, it's my gift to you. I really I'm, I'm so keen on people uh, making sure that their sleep uh, hygiene, as it's called, is on par, you know, really on point uh, that this is why I just wanted to make sure this is available to as many people as possible. And then, AJ, we've got the thorny issue of hydration. Um, Most of us are dehydrated at some point throughout the day. Most of us don't drink sufficient fluids. Um, I know I'm I'm like that. If I'm working, if I've got a major project from writing another book or whatever, um, I can sit there and suddenly find it's three o'clock in the afternoon and I've only had one cup of tea dreadful um so i've really had to learn to make sure and, and create strategies to make sure i stop and drink water the best hydrating fluid of course is water as we know um, it's also very very useful to eat beautiful luscious juicy fruits because they also are incredibly hydrating so again you can keep your your fluid levels up with with fruits and, and so on um, and also, of course, veggies, you know, cucumbers, which technically is a fruit, but also lettuce and, of course, all the other juicy things that we can throw into a beautiful, luscious salad. So, again, these are hydrating, but please do remember also treat yourself to around about a litre and a half to two litres of, of fluid a day, ideally water. Um, and remember that tea and coffee, if it's caffeinated, does not count towards your hydration Camp for the day because that caffeine dehydrates you. So it's kind of, it's an anti-hydration thing. So just remember to steer clear of that. Um, And then I wanted to talk about, uh, uh, I I mentioned at the top, uh, skincare and hair care. Now, one of the things that happens when we hit the menopausal years is that we notice that our skin, actually really starts to, there's something about the skin quality. It really starts to um, not be as elastic as it was. We may start to notice fine lines and wrinkles. Now, it's not a problem. Aging is not a problem, but um, when I talk to a lot of my clients and patients, a lot of them feel so young on the inside uh, that they actually want the outside to reflect that. And there's nothing wrong with that. And there's also nothing wrong with ageing gracefully and and not paying attention to these things at all. It's down to the individual. It's a matter of choice. So I'm, you know, I personally like to, I like to use makeup, I like to try and, you know, sort of keep the wrinkles at bay. And the trick with this, Mm -hmm. actually, we know is a whole food plant based diet, SOS free, uh, but also hydration, as I was just mentioning, Um, it it really truly does make a a difference. Um, It plumps us out from within, we have within us a substance called hyaluronic acid, which is what gets injected into you if you have, fillers so rather than having to have expensive fillers make sure you're properly hydrated because it makes a heck of a difference even if you get bags under your eyes if you're proper that's usually because you're dehydrated if you notice that you've got puffiness sort of around here uh, particularly in the morning again it's because you're dehydrated so the first thing to do when you wake up in the morning is swig down a good pint of water if you possibly can it will help you it will help you uh, intellectually it helps get your cognitive function boosted it helps everything start moving in your digestion Um, it helps you with urination and bowel movements but also again as i say it really plumps out the skin and it you know it actually makes you look younger and healthier so happy days and it's not expensive you know it's amazing what we can do without spending loads and loads of money so there's that and also um, I wanted to talk about um, hair care and um, again a lot of my clients and patients say to me oh, I've started to lose hair during menopause it's really thinning well um it doesn't need to um the reason is it's because of this precipitous this drop off in estrogen, estrogen levels. And um, so what we can do about that is that obviously once we've got everything else under control, properly hydrating, we're doing our exercise, we're making sure that we're eating a really good whole food plant-based diet um, and not adding refined, added refined salt, oil and sugar. um, When all of that is in play and we're managing our stress and we're getting adequate sleep, The next thing that we can can do is we can do this amazing, super simple, easy trick. This is amazing. It's more effective than uh, pharmaceutical preparations like minoxidil and so on. Uh, Minoxidil is usually prescribed for male pattern baldness. And yes, it does work. Unfortunately, it elevates blood pressure. So that's not desirable at all, given that um, heart and circulatory diseases are the leading killer in the West. So we want to avoid elevated blood pressure at all costs, obviously. So what we do instead is we, this is my my recipe and I've got um, on my website, you'll also go to my blog, um, I've got lots and lots and lots of blog articles, you can just do a search and just put in something like um, hair, just put in hair and you'll get that particular blog up where I actually talk about all of these strategies so you can actually take a look and and read them. Um, But my trick that I really want to share with you because it works is um, organic rosemary essential oil. So what we do is, we wet our hair, we get some lovely organic baby shampoo, ideally, because it's got fewer ingredients, it hasn't got any nasties, no chemical nasties usually in it um, at all, if it's organic, and it's baby shampoo, so it's not so scented, it's very, very gentle. And then we'll put um, a couple of drops, two to three drops, no more than that, two to three drops in the shampoo in your hand, smush it around, and then rub that into your scalp, leave it on for a minute. Just to soak into your scalp, obviously cleaning the ends of your hair as well, then you can shower it off or wash it off or however you do it. Um, This is such an interesting thing because the reason this works is because rosemary essential oil actually um, counteracts the effect of dihydrotestosterone which is what causes men to lose their hair, male pattern baldness. And women, we have testosterone as well. So we we have this dihydrotestosterone. And when we use, and, and men can use this rosemary oil as well. I've tried it on my honey, it's made his hair grow back quite a lot uh not perfect but it's getting there and I've tried it on various other people and it works the really interesting thing and I I mean I know what the research says and we know the research proves that this this technique works we know it does but what I find and this is this is anecdotal because I'm not aware of any research having been done on this but anecdotally I've got unfortunately a few well quite a few girlfriends who've come to um, come to me saying oh I've got I've been diagnosed with cancer I've got to go to chemo I'm going to lose my hair what do I do have you got any ideas what can I you know what can I do to look after myself and of course also I've got lots and lots of um, clients and patients who've, who've been diagnosed as well um, and so obviously there are lifestyle strategies all the things we've just spoken about but when they've got through their chemo and you know they've rung the bell because they've finished their their course and all the rest of it I ask them to start on this 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 technique with the rosemary essential oil and it's very very interesting because their hair has grown back very very quickly so much so this is the anecdotal part because it's just me sharing what I've observed in people and I haven't done a research study on this at all but what they are telling me, these ladies are telling me, is that their oncology nurses and their oncologists have said, "What are you doing? Why is your hair growing back so quickly? Are you sort of are you using something? What's going on?" Um, and it's marked. It's really, really remarkable, and they are noticing that this is happening. And it's happened. It's not coincidence. It's happened to so many people. I think I'm probably up to about twenty five people that I know personally who've used this and it's helped them regrow hair super quickly after chemo. So, I mean, it it is amazing. Um, You know, it it is just so easy. Um, It conditions your hair beautifully as well. Quite honestly, there's nothing, nothing to lose. You've got nothing to lose apart from the the cost of a little bottle of organic rosemary oil, essential oil, and it will last a really, really long time. And a bottle of baby, organic baby oil, uh, sorry, baby shampoo, I beg your pardon. Um, So that's one um, technique. The other technique is actually also that works in a very, very similar way. And it's actually onion juice. Um, You can buy onion juice, you'll be glad to know you don't need to juice onions, because that would be smelly and it would take a long time and i think you would probably lose interest in doing that on a daily basis buy yourself some onion juice. you can get it on amazon or wherever uh, or in the health food stores and you just wash your hair and then before you uh, just sort of when you've done your final rinse, this is going to sound really weird now, you rub the onion juice into your scalp and you leave it and you just let your hair dry or you dry your hair with your hair dryer, whatever. The good news is that the oniony smell dissipates. You won't be walking around smelling like onions, which I'm sure you're really glad to know. Um, So anyway, it does work. It massively regrows hair really, really quickly. So those are a couple of tips that really do make a absolute market difference and very, very fast. So, um, yeah, so I hope that those are useful. And um, I know we're coming to sort of towards the the end of the show, AJ, are are there any questions that have come up at all that anybody wants to have answers to at all? Yeah,
0: so one question I see from Rebecca is um, what role does having excess body fat and drinking alcohol and coffee play in one's experience of menopause and perimenopause?
1: What a brilliant question. Thank you. Uh, Rebecca, that's an amazing question. Thank you. Um, You've really sort of hit the nail on the head, actually. It's almost sort of the trifecta of of things you shouldn't do. Um, Yeah, the, the, The problem with alcohol, I mean, actually, the research now says There's no safe level of alcohol. Um, And I know that we read these things about, oh, well, there's resveratrol, that anti-aging substance in red wine. Yeah, but you'd have to drink gallons of red wine to get that anti-aging effect Um, and to get enough resveratrol into your system to really be an antioxidant that's actually worth anything. So we're not going to do that. Um, Obviously, coffee. Coffee is... Now, there are two uh, sides of the story with coffee. There's some evidence to show that coffee has a, a slight anti-cancer and cardiac protective effect in women. Um, it's unknown whether it's the caffeine or whether it's the coffee itself. And yet in other studies, it does actually say that uh-uh, if you're going through the menopause, try not to have it. Caffeine does you no favours. Um, and I know that if you haven't slept, you know the first thing you really want to do in the morning is just guzzle down uh, a cup of coffee um, and just to get a, a, you know, caffeine boost just to get yourself through the day. Um, it's, it's really totally understandable but it's it has that devastating knock-on effect of giving you that caffeine slump afterwards. It's just gonna make symptoms worse. So please try to avoid everything you've spoken about there um, really is best avoided. And, and the belly, and, and you were talking about also the abdominal uh, weight gain around the middle. Um, again, because it is, uh, it, it, this particular body fat, the, 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 the belly fat and the visceral fat produces estrogens and uh, you know the truth of the matter in menopause, uh, in fact, in, in women's lives, is that the less estrogen or oestrogen that you are exposed to, actually, throughout your life, the better, because in in many um, types of female cancers, the breast, ovary, uterine, cervical, and so on, those uh, hormonal-mediated cancers are f- driven. By levels of estrogen uh, estrogen they that are much you know it, they really do it does have an impact so by reducing our belly fat as i said earlier it's not body shaming this is not an aesthetic discussion it's nothing to do with how we look um it doesn't you know it's it does not play into any of those things at all this is about health it's about physiology um, and it's about, you know, really protecting yourself um, from uh, from potential cancers. Um, And also, uh, as I I mentioned as well, we know that the the belly fat and the visceral fat also produces particular cytokines that dramatically upregulate chronic inflammation, which drives and underpins all of those illnesses. That we spoke about earlier, those chronic diseases that we can avoid. We don't have to succumb to them and we can turn them around. This is the really exciting positive stuff. Um, that, you know, we do have so much more control, as I said earlier, the decisions that we make, moment to moment, minute to minute, you know, am I going to go out and exercise? Or am I going to stay home and binge another episode of the latest Netflix drama? Am I going to eat that donut, or am I going to nip out and get a healthy salad? Um, you know, it's all of these things. Am I going to go? Am I going to go to bed at a reasonable hour and try and preserve my sleep hygiene, or am I going to stay up again, uh, binging, <laughs> binging Netflix uh, or, or other channels? Uh, yeah. So you know, all of these things. You know, these choices that we make, we we do have so much more control over the way our future is can, can pan out.
0: Nice. Any other uh, questions, AJ? Yeah, uh, people and, uh, people are asking, is it important to eat high phytoestrogen foods like tofu? And what about flax seeds?
1: Okay, yeah, thank you. Actually, those are really good points. Again, um, there's some thought because of the, the diet in Japan, um, and there's some thought that uh, a lot of the, the women there are eating fermented soy products, um, and uh, yeah, and, and processed soy. So it's believed actually that the soy products are not the demon that they've been made out to be there's been a lot of anti-soy propaganda um but it does actually seem to be helpful to women during menopause um an actual fact um, if i can get it i don't know if i can get it but my mum when she was sailing through the menopause she used to make something called men- 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 menopause cake and it had uh, things like uh linseeds uh flax seeds as we call them and various other wonderful goodies in it, and uh, I must try and see if she's still got the recipe. If she has, I'll post it on my website. Um, yeah, it really did seem to work for her and her friends as well. They tried it, and they found that it stopped all the hot flashes and all the rest of it. Uh, so yeah, you know, Lindsay, it is good. Um, you can also, of course, uh, start to take advantage of mm-hmm. okay. uh, complementary integrative medical approaches, things like acupuncture homeopathic medicine herbal medicine um massage is tremendously helpful um also of course things like the relaxation response that i often talk about uh dr herbert benson and his team at harvard medical school at the mind body institute um um they what they did uh, was that they looked at they, they got women meditating doing their mantra meditation the relaxation response meditation again you can download that on on my site as well again free um and you do that 20 minutes minutes twice a day, and they had women doing that and they found that their menopausal symptoms actually just disappeared. So it's amazing, you know, these things actually really modulate our hormonal response. Um, And as I say, it doesn't cost anything. And so you've got a situation where the, where big pharma is trying to medicalize this thing that happens to us as women, that's completely natural. Um, They're trying to medicalize it because we live in the Western world and we do eat horrendous diets and all the rest of it. Not probably not the people watching this program, Um, but you know, we. We know we know people that do and so uh, you know if we could but share this information with them so please anybody who's who's watching if you can go out and just say look hey check out that video just have a look at this discussion because there's so much in there that is absolutely free it is easy to do, almost too easy. I think that's a lot of the time why, because it's so easy, we, we tend to sort of almost disregard it, but it does work. I promise you these, these things work. Um, and just do what you can to support people who are going through a really hard time uh, because you know the, the answers are there and we don't have to resort to medication.
0: Great, and Connie says, is it true that late
1: onset menopause
0: increases cancer risk?
1: No, 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 It, it well, Uh, Yes and no, but let me explain that with a bit more depth because what we know about cancer is there's a huge genetic component so you know if you you know my my advice would be if you have a genetic um, predisposition towards any kind of cancer it doesn't matter what kind it is then obviously look at your lifestyle look at the changes that you can make we know from the work by dean ornish and all of his colleagues that's been replicated time and time again and published in in the world's leading research journals that we can switch off i mean just looking at his prostate cancer study he was able to switch on and off the genes that code for prostate cancer in men who'd been diagnosed with prostate cancer and had opted for watchful waiting. So, and he did that with uh, switching the men to a whole food plant-based diet getting them to do yoga, um, getting them involved in a support group. So they had a buddy system and getting them to do sort of mild, um, mild to moderate exercise. And then he switched them back to their previous lifestyle. So when they were doing all the intervention things, you know, the healthy things, their genes that expressed and promoted cancer just switched off. And when they put those same that same group back on their old diet, they switched back on again. So then of course they quickly switch them back to the, the new diet, the new lifestyle. So the answer is, um, yes, if you've got a predisposition, many people don't have a predisposition, but lifestyle factors, can of course promote cancers. So let's say, even if you didn't have a predisposition towards lung cancer, there was no lung cancer in the the family, but you decided you were going to be a cigarette smoker, then yes, obviously you increase your risk. But things like psychological poise, stress response management, um, all of these things, as well as leading a healthy lifestyle, otherwise as well, actually all are hugely cancer protective. Um, Making sure you're eating your fresh fruit and veggies is hugely cancer protective. For example, curcumin um, is an an extract. It's a a substance in turmeric, that yellow spice that is used uh, to make make um, curries tasty and, and, and yellow, that yellow color. Curcumin is one of the most thoroughly researched substances in the sort of the food pan, you know, pan, uh, uh, panoply um, because it's got anti-proliferative effects, which means that if you had a tumor, um, tumors only stay alive because blood vessels have to grow into them to stay alive. And so it's called proliferation curcumin stops that proliferative um, effect. It's anti-tumor, so when when tumors start to grow, curcumin stops that growth. Um, I could go on, but I'm not going to, because if you go to PubMed, P-U-B-M-E-D, and just type in uh, curcumin, you will see what I'm talking about. It's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of studies. PubMed is the NIH, National Institute of Health's um, database of literally millions of biomedical research studies. I thoroughly encourage people to get involved and, and look at PubMed. A lot of the papers you'll look at, if, if you're not a, you know, medically inclined, a lot of them you'll look at and go, yeah, well, that's that looks like, that's just Greek to me. I don't understand what these people are going on about, but there will be studies. And again, look at my blog, because again, go to my blog, go to my website, or go to the Complementary Medical Association website. I'm president of the Complementary Medical Associ- Association. And the link to the the CMA website again is, is in the show notes. I'm sure it is there. And um, again, look at curcumin, look at turmeric. We've got loads of articles and these are really um, consumable uh, articles that are great for lay readers. So yeah, you know, there's a lot out there. So to answer the question, we actually don't, you know, we. But there's so much that we can do to really protect ourselves against cancer. But if we do succumb to it, there's so much that we can do to actually really deal well with it it's mindset it's nutrition it's exercise and so on and there's so much more that can be done um even medically now the thing is also again i'm not one to throw the baby out with the bathwater. what i was just going to say was before we come to an end that there's so much that can be done and you know It's not a death sentence that it used to be. Anyway, I hope that that's helpful. If you've got any more questions, you can always leave them under the video and I'm happy to come back. Thank you you so much. Just a real quick one from Jennifer who would love the
0: menopause cake recipe. What brand of rosemary essential oil do you recommend?
1: Any brand, as long as it's an organic one, okay? Because it won't have any dodgy additives. It will be pure. If If it says it's organic, it will be pure. You'll be fine with that.
0: Thank you so much. This was a wonderful discussion. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back at 2 p.m. Pacific time when my guest is Matt Bennett, and he's going to be making a five-star pickle salad. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.